Uh, go ahead and open your Bibles to Mark 15, and um, we're going to turn here after um, uh, after two weeks of being kind of out of Mark. We I'm thankful to Don Ward, my friend um, from Charlottesville, for preaching two weeks ago about being full of the Spirit. Yes, that's possible during COVID. We can grow in the uh, the, the fruits of the Spirit during this season. And uh, for Joe Slater last year, uh, just reminding us of our, our call uh, to the nations, just like Eric did out of Jonah 3. But um, let's stand in honor of God's Word. <clears throat> I'm going to read verses. Uh, I'm going to read that. I'm going to start at the end of verse 20, actually. It's not um, going to be on the slide, I don't think, but, uh, but just hang in there. And then I'm going to read through the end, uh, through verse 39. So the soldiers led Jesus out to crucify him. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Rufus and Alexander, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And they offered him wine and mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, the king of the Jews. And with him, they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, aha, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, he saved others. He cannot even save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he's calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, Truly, this man was the Son of God. Let me pray for us. Lord, would you show us your glory? Show us the glory of the Son of God who would suffer a cross to show us your love. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. So I want to talk about the the crucifixion, obviously. Um, I don't know if you heard they crucified him, they crucified him, they crucified him uh, continually, but we're going to talk about the crucifixion of the Son of God, and then I want to shift and talk about the apocalypse, 
of the Son of God. And that's a loaded word. Uh, we're going to unpack that. Uh, the crucifixion and the apocalypse of the Son of God. So let's, let's talk about how they crucified Jesus. Uh, you see that in verse 20 um, and 24 and, and elsewhere. Uh, but, but one word additionally I want to point out is the word uh, Golgotha in verse 22, right? Um, you, you've heard that word before. Uh, if you've been around the church for any period of time, you've, you've heard of, of, of Golgotha or Golgotha, depending on how you pronounce it. And um, I, I learned something this week that I didn't know. Uh, maybe you've also heard the word uh, where we get Calvary, right? Not cavalry, but Calvary. Uh, that comes from the Latin translation of the Aramaic. Golgotha means place of the skull. And when they wrote the, uh, the Vulgate, the Latin translation of the Bible, uh, Jerome, who, who did that translation, used the Latin word calvarium to translate Golgotha. And that in Latin means, you know, like the, the top of the skull. Um, so presumably there's this round uh, stone hill, uh, and that's where we get the, the phrase uh, Calvary. I, I didn't know that. Um, but anyway, I, I still learn things, even though I'm 50 now, right? Um, and, and Mark gives us a lot of, of details as we reach the final hours of Jesus' life. Uh, he's been speeding along, and we've noticed this throughout Mark's gospel. And he keeps inserting the word immediately, like just... He's not going to stop, but immediately, immediately, immediately cruising through uh, Jesus' three years of earthly ministry. And then when we get to that final week, and now in the final hours, he's tapping the brakes, he's slowing down, and he's pointing out details, like details like this anesthetic cocktail offered to Jesus, the, uh, the wine mixed with myrrh, right? And Jesus refuses it because he's not going he's to have his pain dulled. He's not going to look for anything to mitigate what he's, what he's going to suffer. And there's a, there's a purpose behind that. But anyway, the one thing that we don't get a lot of detail about, though, is the actual crucifixion. I mean, it's, it's almost like, you know, he doesn't want to dwell on the, on the gory specifics, but, but at the same time, he doesn't want us to to, to forget that Jesus was crucified. I mean, he, he, he says it six times or five times in nine verses and then another time in, in the next chapter. But, you know, we began at the end of verse 20. They led him out to crucify him, verse 24. They crucified him, verse 25. There's a third hour, it's 9 a.m. When they crucified him, verse 27. With him they crucified the two robbers, verse 32. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. And then you get to the, uh, chapter 16 and the resurrection. And the angel tells the women, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. But he is risen. He's not here. Um, don't ever want to talk about the death of Jesus without remembering he didn't stay that way. He was raised from the dead. Uh, so to remember that. But, but now we, we do need to to go deeper on the fact that Jesus was crucified. Mark doesn't want us to miss how central uh, this is. He, but the act of, of crucifying a man seems to be so horrible as to be unmentionable. 
He's not going to go into those details. It's almost like he wants to divert our eyes from the torturous crucifixion and look down instead of looking up at the cross. We're looking down at the soldiers gambling for Jesus' bloody robe and tunic. So again and again and again, they crucified him, but, but Mark doesn't tell us about a crucifixion. That's, that's significant. Um, some of you have been to the Holy Land. Some of you have been to you know, what's presumably Golgotha. It's uh, now covered by the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. Uh, and some of you have been in there, and you've, you've seen the presumable place where, where Jesus was crucified, presumable place where he was buried, uh, Joseph's tomb, and so on. Um, Holy Land tours want tourists. Uh, they, they want you to come. They want uh, Christians uh, to, to go on a pilgrimage and, and see the Holy Land, and, and certainly that would be fantastic to do. Uh, one of the things that they do is, is they will remind you or, or tell people that uh, when, you, when you go, it's not what you expect. Like, I think we have in our minds this idea that Jerusalem and uh, Judea and Palestine, that whole area, is sort of just, just dusty, brown, uh, scarce, and, um, and so on. But actually, what, what you'll find on the Holy Land tour sites is they'll tell you about Jerusalem in the springtime. Jerusalem during Passover, which is the rainy season, which means that the flowers are coming out, which means that the olive trees are in bloom. Like, like when, when they were in the, the olive grove as Jesus is praying and they're in Gethsemane, like those olive trees are in bloom. And it's beautiful. And the flowers are coming out, the red anemones and the purple crocuses. And they even have daffodils, the yellow daffodils. So, so all over the ground, there's beauty. And, you know, in the trees, there's beauty. And you, you can sort of imagine on the, the tour buses that are taking the, the Christian pilgrims you know, who are checking out these Holy Land sites, they're, they're playing Louis Armstrong, you know, on, on the bus. You know, what a wonderful world. I, I see trees of green, red roses too. I see them bloom for me and you. And I think to myself, what a wonderful world. And in the next verse, right, of that, of that song, I see friends shaking hands, saying, how do you do? They're really saying, I love you. And, and we get this picture of, of what a wonderful world this is. We really do live in a beautiful world. Uh, Kathy and Lydia and I were up, we, we just went on a drive yesterday to go see the fall foliage. Uh, apparently us and the entire rest of the state of Virginia uh, we're up on Skyline Drive, and, and I've never seen it as full before. I've never, I've, I've never seen as many cars as I did. Like every single overview uh, to, to look out over either Rockfish Valley or Shenandoah Valley, every overview not only had cars stacked, like double parked along the overview, but they were parked along the shoulder of Skyline Drive uh, for hundreds of yards. I've, I've never seen that many cars. We were, we were actually on our way to Wintergreen, and we were going to take 151 and then jet over. Uh, we were going to take 11 down to 151. The, the 11 
going down the mountain was backed up all the way to the popcorn stand at the top of Afton Mountain. So we, we took Skyline Drive uh, to get to Wintergreen. So that's how we ended up there. And just everybody is there to admire the beauty of what a wonderful world we live in. But as beautiful as our world is, it's just as violent and just as ugly. You see friends shaking hands saying, how do you do? They're really saying, I love you. But that's not always the case, is it? Especially not in Palestine. With, uh, with Jesus, they crucified two robbers, verse 27, one on his right, one on his left. And uh, Actually, you see in your Bible, uh, it skips verse 28, it goes to verse 29, those who passed by derided him. Uh, some manuscripts have another verse inserted there. The scripture was fulfilled that says he was numbered with the transgressors, right? Isaiah 62. So all these prophecies that are being fulfilled. We're not going to have time to go into all those, but that's one of them. All four Gospels tell us about two other men that were crucified with Jesus, two other criminals. Uh, there, there, were, there were three Roman executions planned for that morning, three posts uh, stuck in the rock of Golgotha, the place of the skull, and presumably uh, the third one was for Barabbas, right? And Jesus ends up being substituted for Barabbas. Crucifixion was one of the most violent deaths imaginable. We live in a very, very beautiful world and a very, very violent world. It was done publicly so that as many people as possible would, would see what happens to somebody who dares defy the Roman government, who dares defy the system, who dares defy... What, what has been mandated for, at that point, you know, the entire world. I mean, the Roman Empire was, was all in the own world. Uh, listen to one first-century Roman statesman uh, and, an and a professor, an educator, named Quintilian. He says that whenever we crucify the guilty, the most crowded roads are chosen where the most people can see and be moved by this fear. Like the Roman government holding its power through intimidation, through violence, through, through torture. And uh, for a lot of people, they, they would shudder to look at such a thing, um, and, and they would not go near the cross. But obviously, we see in this passage a, a great number of people who are sort of glorying in the suffering, deriding Jesus, mocking him. And, and we, we saw that earlier, the soldiers mocking Jesus, the crowds are gloating over Jesus. Uh, Jesus endured this merciless mocking from everyone, the, the people, the priests, even the other two criminals who were crucified with him. And, and it just like piles on the ugliness that exists in this world alongside the beauty. Jerusalem was a violent place 2,000 years ago, and it still is. And this world was a violent place, and it still is. And all around us, people are harming people. All around us, people are doing unspeakable things to people. 
Violence isn't just inflicted by abusers or murderers or rapists or racists. Violence, it's not just criminals that, that hurt people. Entire cultures, entire governments endorse and enable and inflict violence. And it always has been. And it will continue to be that way until Jesus returns. So probably not going to tell you anything new, but I need to set the stage here. Like, just all we have to do is think about places like Germany in the 1930s and 40s and the Holocaust, where six million Jews were gassed by an entire culture and government that said, yeah, go ahead and gas them. And then there's Stalin over in Russia starving four and a half million Ukrainians because they were the upstarts. And they, they still are. They still haven't lost that independence streak. And you think of the Khmer Rouge executing one, one million Cambodians in the killing fields. And genocide still happens today. It happened just last decade in Syria and it's going to crop up again. So there's government-sponsored genocide. There's government-sponsored persecution just about anywhere where Sharia law, um, you know, as the Quran prescribes it, anywhere where Sharia law is, is, is the governing law, there's going to be persecution and, and violence done to those who oppose it. Uh, you see violence done to Christians and even uh, Muslims in China. Other religious groups are done in China. North Korea, you know, all over the world, India, uh, religious groups are persecuted and it's given endorsement by the government and endorsement by cultures. We live in a violent world. We have violence done in the name of economics. It's happened in history. It's why you know, slavery continued because, we, well, we, we, we can't not have our... Our crops harvested, we need the slaves, uh, and today we can't not have cheap labor, so we need the sweatshops. And we justify the hurt inflicted on the people in those sweatshops. And there's racism still, and there's still a lot of violence from those who want to insist on their superiority and even those who want to resist the racism. We have violence done to the unborn in the name of a woman's right to choose, right? To choose abortion. To choose a violent end for an unborn child. We have violence done in the entertainment industry and we have movies and music and, and video games that, that endorse and perpetuate uh, violent lifestyles. We have a porn industry that enables and promotes violent sexual behavior against women and children. We've got a, a gun culture that champions gun rights um, unapologetically, but is unimpressive, unimpressive when it comes to championing, pr protecting people against gun violence. So I know I'm picking on both sides and hopefully disrupting just about everybody here because we live in a violent world. We can't avoid it. 
Very beautiful world, to be sure, but, but very violent world, too. And so this brings us to the apocalypse of the Son of God. And look at verse 33 and following, how uh, at around noon, uh, there was this darkness that came over the whole land until 3 p.m. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is this Aramaic phrase, means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then verse 37, Jesus uttered this loud cry and breathed his last, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Um, there's a lot of things happening here that sound like the end of the world is taking place. There's man's inhumanity to man. There's leaders acting wickedly. There's unexplainable darkness covering the land. There's loud cries of despair and God-forsakenness. There's, there's Matthew, uh, in Matthew's gospel, he even describes an earthquake that takes place at this point. And it just sounds like this utter chaos and, and apocalypse going on, right? Our ears hear the word apocalypse, and we immediately think of something that's destructive, that's the end of, of an age, that's, that's chaotic, and, and, and so on. And this would seem to apply to this scene, right? It would make sense to this scene. Because an apocalypse is an unveiling. It's a, it's a revelation. The last book of our Bible, which we know is Revelation, is you know, the English word that, for the Greek, which is apocalypse. The, the word apocalypse is a transliteration of that Greek word. And it means unveiling. Revelation is an unveiling. It's the revelation of, of, the, of Jesus Christ. It's the unveiling of Jesus Christ so we can see him in all of his glory. And God tears the, the temple curtain in two from top to bottom. It's torn from the top to the bottom. It's God tearing it, not the people tearing it, right? If it was people tearing it, it would be torn from the bottom to the top. But God pulls back the curtain to unveil his glory, the glory of Jesus. Because the crucifixion of the Son of God is also the unveiling and the apocalypse and the revealing of the Son of God. Where we see the glory of Jesus in a way that nobody expected. Nobody expected. The, 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 the unveiling uh, of, of Jesus, uh, the, the, the opening of the Holy of Holies in that temple, that the, the curtain separated the space where only the priests could go only on one day of the year, only with all of the purification and all of the sacrifices that were done on his behalf and on behalf of the people. And now that way is open to anyone at any time to be with God, to be in God's presence. The presence of God is open to those who want it, and it's open through a crucified Savior. Listen to um, what one commentator says. The earth-shaking event which Mark thus describes goes with the darkness at noon and the tearing of the temple veil. And out of the unexplained cosmic darkness comes God's new word of creation, as at the beginning. From now on, the temple is as good as finished, and its purpose has been taken over by the event which has just occurred, the crucifixion. And from now on, access into the presence of the living God is open to all through the death of his son. So yeah, it's an apocalypse. It's an end of, it's the, end of, of, of the old order of things. 
And it's, the, it's new. It's a new creation that God is, is bringing, a new era that God is bringing through the gospel of Jesus. So let me ask you this. What's the worst thing that can happen to a person? We've talked about a lot of violent things. But what's the worst thing that can happen to somebody? We get a clue through the cry of Jesus. Jesus doesn't cry out, my God, my God, why am I being crucified? Why, is this, why am I suffering this pain? Or my God, my God, why are these people mocking me? Or my God, my God, why are these people rejecting me? In that uh, torturous moment, the, the thing that Jesus cries out is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And it tells us that the worst thing that can happen to Jesus is to be separated from his Father. That's the worst thing that can happen to any of us, is to be separated from God. And so the best thing, the most blessed thing that can ever happen to somebody is to be with God. And and that's what the opening of that, that temple curtain symbolizes, that anybody, anyone with faith in the Son, trusting in Him through His death on our behalf, can have access to God, can be with God, and not separated from him, and not suffer the worst thing that can ever happen to anyone. So in verse 37, Jesus utters this loud cry and breathes his last. And verse 39 says, when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the son of God. Um, Mark, we mentioned already, won't let us forget that Jesus was crucified. He says it again and again and again. He also won't let us forget that Jesus is the Son of God. This testimony by the centurion, truly this man was the Son of God, it happens at the end of Mark's gospel. And and this is a bookend uh, because Mark began his gospel, chapter 1, verse 1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. It's central to what Mark is trying to help us see through his biography of Jesus. He wants us to see that Jesus is the Son of God. He tells us that front and center, and then you get to chapter 3. And the demons, the unclean spirits, whenever they saw Jesus, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God! And, And then Jesus would shut them up, right? Remember kind of that enigmatic way that Jesus kept telling people to be quiet and silencing the demons whenever they would talk about his identity as the Son of God or as the Messiah. And you go, why is he doing that? And then in chapter 9, um, you got the Mount of Transfiguration, and Peter, James, and John are up there with Jesus, and Jesus is transfigured into light. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, this is my beloved Son, listen to him, the Father's Son, the Son of God. So the demons are saying he's the Son of God, the Father's saying the Son of God. Mark is telling us his gospel, this is the Son of God. And then you get to chapter 14, which we looked at you know, a few weeks ago. Again, the high priest, Caiaphas, asked Jesus, are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? Because he won't say God because he's trying to be pure and not profane or blaspheme God. So they use the word the blessed instead of God. They won't say God's name. And it's just this complete demonstration of hypocrisy, right? 
Caiaphas doesn't believe that Jesus is the Son of God. But it's this question, right? Are you the Son of God? Is this the Son of God? Mark keeps asking us, do you want to know what God is like? The Son of God, the Son of God, the Son of God. He keeps telling us that God is like Jesus. Because in that culture 2,000 years ago, if you want to know about the Father, you look at the Son. Because the Son would take up the Father's trade, and the Son would be like the Father, and the family traditions are maintained, and the name is maintained, and you know, all that. So, yeah, if you want to know what the Father's like, you look at the Son. So Mark, throughout his gospel, keeps asking us, do you want to know what God is like? Look at the Son of God. Look at the Son of God. Look at the Son of God. And so now, at the culmination, at the, the conclusion of his biography, this gospel account, Mark shows us what God is really like. God is willing to go to a cross for us. And that is part of his glory. One of the commentators I was reading says, Jesus has stifled speculation about his identity because all such announcements were premature, right? Hey, don't tell anybody. Be quiet about that. You know, all, all that's premature. Because not until his death on the cross can anyone rightly understand who Jesus is and what Son of God means. So Jesus is, is suspended on a cross between heaven and earth, rejected by earth, right? Rejected by everybody. We don't want him. We want Barabbas and rejected by heaven. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And it's in that moment that we see the manifestation of God's glory. How in the world is that possible? How is that a demonstration of the glory of God? Well, the centurion, interestingly, is the first person who with integrity confesses Jesus as the son of God. Caiaphas was a skeptic, but the centurion is, is saying this in truth, truly. This man was the son of God. And Mark notes that the centurion is standing right before the cross of Jesus. You can even see that in, in the details there that Mark's recording. And everybody else is looking away. Everybody else is mocking him and deriding him. And the centurion is standing there at the foot of the cross right in front of Jesus. And he makes that profession. And he's looking right at Jesus and he's hearing Jesus. And something about what Jesus is saying and the way that Jesus is dying, that centurion is convinced this is what God is like. This is remarkable, not only because he was a Roman, a, a non-Jewish person, a Gentile, but he was a soldier. A man who is used to violence, like a man who is just desensitized to violence. How many, how many crucifixions do you think this centurion would have presided over? How many times had he physically executed another human being? This is a man deeply acquainted with violence. And what was it like years ago 
first enlisted, first time, another centurion handed him a couple of nails and a hammer and said, here, pound these spikes into that man's hands and his feet. What does that kind of violence do to a person's soul? How how does that torture torture a soul? And here is that same soldier, and something about Jesus touches that soldier's damaged soul, reversing the curse, starting to soften him, where he's professing there's something about the way that this man is dying that, that convinces me he's the son of God. That's what God is like. This is a God who, who isn't out to uh, execute his enemies like you know typical kings do, uh, typical monarchs do, what the emperor does. He doesn't just execute his enemies. He takes the place of his enemies. That's what God is like. God doesn't condemn a violent world, but he enters into it, even subjecting himself to it. This is a God who doesn't execute his enemies, but but saves them. And that's what Christianity is. Christianity is not just rules to follow. It's not just doctrines to believe. It's not just ceremonies to perform. All these other religions boil down to those things, but Christianity gives us Jesus, the Son of God who who endured a violent end to free us from the violence suffered by us and to forgive us for the violence inflicted by us. Violent words. Violent attitudes. Violent actions. The cross allows us to be with God, not separated from him. John Stott said, There is then, it is safe to say, no Christianity without the cross. And if the cross is not central to our religion, ours is not the religion of Jesus. So, at this point, uh, my, my initial thought was I, I could go on and, and talk about what does it mean for us to crucify our sinful nature, to carry our cross just like Simon of Cyrene did and his sons Rufus and Alexander, right? Like we could talk about some of the, the, the so what. Like what do we do now in light of Jesus saving us by being executed in our place? Like what, what should we do in faithfulness as disciples to that? But I, I don't think that every sermon has to end with something to do. I think sometimes it's just good to end a sermon with something to feel. And I want to ask, do you feel the weight of the cross? And can you feel the sweet sadness of knowing that Jesus would really suffer for you? He would choose to be treated violently for us? And are you at all bewildered? Like, how does this work? How, 
does the beauty of, of God, how is that demonstrated? Because he cares enough about this violent world that he would subject himself to that violence to save it. There's a beauty in that, and that's bewildering. And how can you not love and worship this God? And, and how can you not follow this Jesus? Do you? Will you? Let's pray. Lord, we don't want to be glib at the foot of the cross. And we do thank you for the resurrection and the celebration and the triumph uh, three days later, but it's probably better for us right now uh, to feel the weight of the cross and to try to understand in a deeper way um, the way your beauty is demonstrated through the violence of that moment. That you would love a sinful world enough to give your life for it. That you would love us enough to give yourself for us. Or that we would feel that sweet sadness. Thank you for opening the way for us to be with you. Thank you for reversing the curse and, and giving us access to God. Anyone who repents and who believes in you can be with you. And we thank you that that promise is extended to us. And I pray, pray for each one of us that we have exercised that faith and that we would follow Jesus. So please help us to do that, we pray in his name. Amen. Please be seated. <clears throat> so I'm, uh, I'm just going to break this down into kind of two parts this morning. We're talking about the crucifixion, uh, and we're talking about the apocalypse, uh, the, the crucifixion of the Son of God and, and, and the apocalypse or the unveiling of the Son of God. We'll talk more about the apocalypse later on, but, um, you know, let's, let's dive into the crucifixion. Um, what, what Mark does here is pretty interesting. Um, he, he just doesn't let us forget. He, he says it again and again and again that Jesus was crucified. Uh, so, for instance, right at the end of, of verse 20, you know, the soldiers let him out uh, to crucify him. And then, uh, let's pick up in 22. They brought him to the place called Golgotha, the place of a skull, and they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him, right? And divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. Look, I know this probably sounds familiar to, to many of us, especially who have you know, been in the church, been, been in the Bible for any length of time. Uh, but if you're new, uh, as I've said before, sometimes if you're new, the things that, that we who have been in Christian circles and spheres for a while, we can get desensitized to these things. But if you're new, you're hearing them a little fresher, and perhaps you even have an advantage over the rest of us because you're, you're seeing and hearing things for the first time, and you're going, wow, and it's having that impact on you. But even if this feels like, you know, okay, I, I know about the crucifixion, we can still learn things. Like, I, I saw something new this week. So the word Golgotha, it's Aramaic, 
Mark translates it for his non-Jewish, non-Aramaic speaking audience back in Rome. You know, they're speaking Greek, presumably. And he translates it, it means place of a skull. Now, when Jerome, uh, the, the, the priest, came along and wanted to translate the Bible into Latin, which by then was become the, the dominant you know, colloquial language, the scholarly language, um, he is translating this passage and translates this Aramaic term Golgotha into Latin, calvarium. It you know, comes from the Latin word for the skull, um, the, actually the top of the skull, the the, the rounded part of, uh, of the skull or, or a bald person is the calvarium. And so presumably this is a hill, it was stone, you know, outcrop or whatever with maybe a rounded top and it reminded people of the, the top of a skull. Well, calvarium. Oh, that's where the word calvary comes from. I, I mean, I've been, you know, hanging out, doing Christian stuff, being a pastor for a while at Calvary, Calvary, Calvary. Where did that word come from? I don't know. Well, it's from the Vulgate, and so I learned something new this week. Just thought you'd want to know. I'm 50 years old. I'm still learning things, right? Anyway, thanks for the birthday wishes. Um, so Mark's been uh, cruising along all for 15 chapters now in, in fourth gear, um, you know, almost kind of exceeding the speed limit, in a hurry to get to the end. Keeps using words like immediately, 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 and you know, we're, 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 you're trying to catch your breath, keeping up with Mark. And now all of a sudden, he's tapping the brakes, he's slowing down, he's giving us lots of details here, here at the end. He gives us details like the, the anesthetic cocktail that's offered to Jesus, the wine mixed with myrrh. But by the way, he did not take it. You know, Jesus is going to feel the full weight of the, of the cross and, and the, the suffering that he's enduring. He's not going to anesthetize himself against any of this. But the one thing that we don't get a lot of detail about, interestingly, is the crucifixion itself. Now, he doesn't want us to be in any doubt and, and tells us again and again that Jesus was crucified. So the end of verse 20, they let him out to crucify him. Verse 24, they crucified him. Verse 25, it was the third hour, nine o'clock in the morning, our time, when they crucified him. Verse 27, with him, they crucified two robbers. Verse 32, those who were crucified with him also reviled him. Even at the, in the next chapter, uh, chapter 16, when the women come to the tomb and the angel is there, and the angel says to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified, but he is risen. He's not here. And, um, and, and we'll get to that. We'll get to the triumph of the resurrection. Uh, we can't forget that Jesus is alive. He's not still in the tomb. He's not dead anymore. Uh, but, but we're not going to be too quick to rush to the resurrection. We need to hang out here at the crucifixion. And we need to feel the weight of this. Mark doesn't want us to miss how central uh, the crucifixion is, how crucial, you know, to, to use the, the, the word um, uh, there to understand how important uh, this. But it seems to, to us, based on Mark's attention to lots of other details, but he won't 
go into the details of the actual crucifixion itself. It seems like it's so, it's so horrible as to be unmentionable. That, that it's almost like Mark wants to divert our eyes from the horror of the cross and look down and just, all right, well, well look at the soldiers. They're gambling over Jesus' bloody robe and tunic. Like, look down, because it's too horrible to look at. It almost seems that way. Um, some of you have been to the Holy Lamb. And, and maybe some of you will get to go. Maybe I'll get to go. I don't know. Um, it would be an amazing experience, I'm sure. And everybody I've talked to who's come back from visiting Jerusalem or, you know, any of the, even the places of Acts, you know, Paul's journeys, et cetera, they just keep coming back and say how history becomes alive. And, and what's, what's interesting is the Holy Land tour companies, uh, they, they want our business, uh, it's a ministry, sure, for, for a bunch of them, but they also want our business. And, and they're, they're busy trying to compete against some, some stereotypes that we in the West have of, of you know, Jerusalem, of, of Galilee, of Judea, of Palestine. And one of those uh, stereotypes is that we tend to think of it as just a dusty, brown, thorny place. You know, the landscape is, is really barren. And they go, no, it's not. In fact, if you go in the spring, you know, Passover time, which is the time that we're reading about when Jesus is in Jerusalem, uh, especially in the spring, it's, uh, it's the wet season. There's uh, been lots of rain and actually things are very green uh, and uh, things are blooming. Uh, the olive trees are in bloom. So, you know, Gethsemane, where Jesus is, you know, it's, it's dark and, and, and you're not seeing much, but if it were daytime, it would be a beautiful garden. The olive trees would be in bloom. And there would be flowers, you know, all over the ground, uh, red anemones and uh, purple crocuses and yellow daffodils uh, are, are all, you know, flowers that, that bloom in Palestine. And you can imagine the, 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 these tour companies, they've got the charter buses and the Christians getting on and off the bus to see these different places. And you can imagine the charter bus, you know, cruising down one of the streets with, uh, you know, Louis Armstrong playing on, on the thing. What a wonderful world. You know, like we, I see trees of green, red roses too. I see them bloom for me and you. And I think to myself, what a wonderful world. I see friends shaking hands. I think, how do you do? They're really saying, I love you. And I think to myself, what a wonderful world. We live in an incredibly beautiful world. No question about it. Um, Kathy and Lydia and I, yesterday, we had, you know, it's a Saturday. What do you want to do today? I don't know. What do you want to do today? Let's go see the fall foliage, right? And, uh, and so we went up and we, headed, we were going to head to Wintergreen um, and, along with the rest of the state of Virginia, apparently. Uh, because we got, to, to, got off the exit at Afton Mountain, and our plan was to head down um, 250, and, uh, and then we'd make a right on 151 and, and go up that way. Well, literally, the traffic was backed up all the way up Afton Mountain on 250 to where you couldn't take 250. 
So we ended up on Skyline Drive. We took a right at the popcorn place, right? And we got on Skyline Drive, and I have never seen as many cars as, I've, as, as, as yesterday on Skyline Drive. You couldn't pass an overlook. I, could, I, couldn't, I couldn't stop at an overlook because at every overlook, cars are double parked, and there's cars lining the shoulder of Skyline Drive on both sides for hundreds of yards in both directions. I've never seen that many people on Skyline Drive in the fall admiring our beautiful valley, whether it's the Rockfish Valley or the Shenandoah Valley. We live in a beautiful place. People travel here to vacation, and you and I get to live here. That's how blessed we are. And and what a wonderful world, right? But it's not always so wonderful. You see people shaking hands saying, how do you do? They're really saying, I love you, but not always. Verse 27, we read about how with Jesus they crucified two robbers, one on his right, one on his left. And then it, um, it, it, you look at your Bibles because it skips a verse. Uh, it goes from verse 27 to verse 29, and those who passed by derided him. Um, some, not all the manuscripts agree, but there's a bunch of them that have a verse 28 that tells us that the scripture was fulfilled that says he was numbered with the transgressors. That's from Isaiah 62. And we don't have time to go into all of the Old Testament prophecies that are being fulfilled in these last hours of Jesus' life. But one of them, of course, is the fact that on that morning, on that Good Friday to us, on that horrific Friday uh, to, to Jesus and these other two criminals, there were three Roman executions planned. Three posts sticking out of the ground as the, as the sun came up that morning. Uh, three posts on Golgotha waiting for the crossbeam with a man who was carrying it to, to his death. And one of those three posts was for Barabbas. But instead, the crowd chose Jesus. They chose an innocent man to suffer in the place of a guilty man. And it's not such a wonderful world after all. There's a lot of violence in the world. Crucifixion was one of the most violent deaths imaginable. Like it was done publicly so that as many people as possible would get the clear, unadulterated message that if anybody resists Rome, this is what's going to happen to them. In fact, one of the um, a first century Roman uh, statesman and, and scholar named uh, Quintilian said that whenever we crucify the guilty, the most crowded roads are chosen where the most people can see and be moved by this fear, this terror, this terrorism. And some people, you know, of course, would shudder with horror, uh, look away and stay away. But we see in Mark's account, right, that certainly there are just as many, if not more, who are getting some kind of sick pleasure from this. Like it's sport to them. It's entertaining. They'll go by and they'll taunt the criminals. 
They'll, they'll gloat over the victims. And Jesus certainly endured his share of this you know, merciless mocking from everyone. We covered this a couple of weeks ago, but, you know, from the, the soldiers to the, the people to the priests, even the other two criminals are all heaping verbal violence on Jesus. Jerusalem was a violent place 2,000 years ago, and it still is, right? I mean, we still hear the stories. And the world was a violent place 2,000 years ago. And it still is. People are still harming people, uh, doing unspeakable things to people. Violence isn't just inflicted by uh, abusers or, or murderers or, or rapists or racists. Like Violence is, is condoned and endorsed by entire cultures and governments. It's promoted, it's pursued. And we've seen this even in recent decades, even the last century, of course, you know, you go to the, the, the familiar things like the Nazi regime and six million Jews who are gassed and everybody's saying, yeah, get rid of those, the dirty Jewish people. Or you, you know, look at Stalin starving four million Ukrainians because they're sort of uppity. Ukrainians are still uppity, aren't they? Um, resisting some of the dictatorship uh, that's been over them. Um, and then you get like the Khmer Rouge uh, in the killing fields of Cambodia where a, a million Cambodians are slaughtered. And so like whole governments are pursuing genocide and it still happens today. It happened in Syria recently and it'll continue to happen until Jesus returns. Governments who promote genocide and that kind of violence. Governments who uh, sponsor persecution against, you know, not just Christians, but depending on where you are, you know, the, the persecution can, can break out against Muslims, it can break out against Hindus, it can break out against, you know, Jains, et cetera. But this is, this is national policy for just about any country that's ruled by Sharia law, you know, where they're, they're following the Quran's dictates to persecute the infidels. In China, uh, they're equal opportunity persecutors, Christian, Muslim, you know, whatever. If you have a faith besides believing in the, in the chairman. Um, India, North Korea, uh, just government-sponsored violence. We live in a violent world. And we do it in the name of economics. You know, we justified slavery by economics. Who's going to... Who's going to plow our fields and who's going to pick the cotton? You know, that was years ago and we're kind of beyond that, right? But, but are we? Are we justifying, you know, sweatshops and slave child labor, you know, all over the world because we want cheap products and so on? I mean, it just, the stuff perpetuates. And, and we could talk about racism and, you know, how there's still a lot of violence on both sides. And we could talk about a woman's right to choose to abort and do violence to an unborn child. We can talk about, you know, the entertainment industry that, that with its movies and music and video games are, are just glorifying violence. We can talk about the porn industry that victimizes women and children in the name of billions of dollars a year. And I'm sorry, but we could also talk about the gun culture 
seems to care more about gun rights than about gun violence. I certainly hear more about gun rights. We live in a violent world. Jesus suffered a violent death. Mark doesn't go into the details, but he doesn't want us to miss. He chose that. He chose that violence. And this is part of the, the, the apocalypse of the Son of God. You know, this was, we saw the crucifixion of the Son of God, but what about the apocalypse? Like, look at verse 33. So when the sixth hour, this is noon now, when, when, uh, at noon there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, for three hours. And at the ninth hour, 3 p.m., Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is Aramaic, for my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jump to verse 37. Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. There's just crazy stuff going on at the, at the, the hour of, of Jesus' death. You've got man's inhumanity to man, right? Just the, the violence that we're capable of, even state-sponsored violence. You've got leaders acting wickedly, putting an innocent man to death. You've got this unexplained supernatural darkness covering the land. You've got loud cries of despair and God-forsakenness you know, by, by the man on the cross. And even in Matthew's gospel, he even describes an earthquake that's taking place at this time. And it's just... It's like this picture of the end times. It's what we associate the apocalypse with, right? Like this terrible stuff that's going to happen. Um, what is an apocalypse? An apocalypse literally means an unveiling. So uh, at the end of our Bibles, the last book of the Bible is Revelation. That's, that's our English word for what in Greek is, is the apocalypse, an unveiling, a revealing. And the book of Revelation is the unveiling of, of Jesus Christ. It literally starts, chapter 1, verse 1, the revelation of Jesus Christ, the unveiling and the, uh, the disclosure of the glory of Jesus, his true nature, you know, this King of kings and Lord of lords, the lamb who was slain, but, but the lion of, of Judah. Um, and, we, and we see him in all of his glory. And, and there's, you know, plagues and bowls and, you know, stuff that is just describing the end times. And we, we associate an apocalypse with an ending. And there is an ending here. Very much an ending. An ending of, of, of the earthly life of Jesus, but an ending to so much more. An end to an old way of relating to God. Like this whole description of the, the, the temple curtain being torn in two from top to bottom. Like if it was people tearing the curtain, like we're going to you know, resist this whole structure of the Jewish temple religion and so on. If they were tearing it, they'd be tearing it from the bottom to the top. But who's tearing it if it's torn from the top to the bottom? God is tearing it. Like a curtain that is being pulled back to reveal the glory of God in Jesus Christ. To open access to all into the, the presence of God, that which was, was restricted to one time a year to one priest who had, had all these sacrifices made on behalf of him and the people, and he would go in one time a year to represent the people before God. And now anybody can come into the presence of God. God's presence is unveiled. 
And it happens because of Jesus. So on the one hand, yes, there is an ending to the old way of relating to God, but there's a new creation. Do you remember Genesis 1, 1? There was darkness over the ocean, over the sea, over the water. And God started a new creation. He started creation. This is a new creation that's coming out of the darkness and the chaos of, of Golgotha. So the presence of God being opened up to everyone is what Jesus is accomplishing for us. One scholar put it this way, that the, the earth-shaking event, which Mark thus describes, goes with the darkness at noon and the tearing of the temple veil. So out of the unexplained cosmic darkness comes God's new word of creation as at the beginning. And from now on, the temple is as good as finished. Its purpose has been taken over by the event which has just occurred. So from now on, access into the presence of the living God is open to all through the death of his son. When you think about Jesus' cry of, of agony on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why does, he, why does he cry that? Why is that his lament? Like think, of, think of anything, any person who has ever suffered that death. What would they be groaning and, and crying about? My God, my God, this, the pain is intolerable. My God, my God, I'm innocent. My God, my God, people are rejecting me and I'm being mocked. And, and you know, those, You'd expect people to complain about those things, but, but Jesus is lamenting that his father has forsaken him. He's, he's not with God anymore. This gives us insight into what is the worst thing any human being could suffer. It's the worst thing that could happen to anybody. Jesus is giving voice to that right now. The worst thing that can happen to anybody is to be separated from God, excluded from him, forsaken by him. So conversely, the best thing, the most blessed thing that can ever happen to a human being is to be with God and to enjoy his presence, to be welcomed and to have access into his, his, his embrace and loved by God and have fellowship with God. That's the best thing that could happen to us. And that's what Jesus was accomplishing when he died in our place. And so in verse 37, Jesus utters this loud cry. He breathed his last. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the son of God. I want to I look at that statement uh, as we conclude. Mark doesn't want us to miss, and, and, he, and he won't let us forget. He's not going to go into the gory details, but he doesn't let us forget that Jesus was crucified. He also doesn't want us to forget that Jesus is the Son of God. And he and he's, keeps coming back to this all throughout the gospel. It's, it, these are bookends. He says it at the end here through the testimony of the centurion. 
He started his gospel, his biography of Jesus in chapter 1, verse 1, with these words, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So all, you know, throughout Mark's gospel, he wants us to know that Jesus is God's Son. He tells us again in chapter 3 that the unclean spirits, whenever they saw Jesus, they fell down before him and cried out, you are the Son of God. And then what would Jesus do whenever the demons were crying out, you know, you're the Messiah, you're the Son of God, and so on. Jesus would, would silence them, right? And he would silence other people who were pointing to, you know, the fact that he's the Messiah or the Christ or whatever. He'd say, you know, let, let, let's not make this public yet. Get to chapter 9. Again, you've got the Mount of Transfiguration. Peter, James, and John go up with Jesus. They see Jesus with Moses and Elijah transfigured into light, the glory of God, and then the voice of the Father saying, this is my beloved Son, this is my Son, this is God's Son whom I love. Listen to him. The demons are talking about Jesus is God's Son. The Father is saying, this is my Son. Mark's saying, this is about the Son of God. And then you get to chapter 14, and the high priest, Caiaphas, asked Jesus, are you the Christ, the Son of the blessed? Because he won't say the word God because somehow that's blasphemous. They'll say the word blessed instead because that makes them holy. But he's, that's not an expression of faith. That's, that's a, an accusation. You can't be the son of God because when Jesus affirms this, crucify him. But it's as if Mark keeps asking us, do you want to know what God is like? Do you want to know what God is like? Do you want to know what God is like? Look at the sun. 2,000 years ago, the sun would almost always take the, the father's trade, you know, become like the father. That's why you've got all these names now uh, in our everyday uh, vocabulary, like William's son, Smith's son, you know, son, 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 because the son did what the father did. So all throughout Mark's gospel, he's saying, you want to know what the Father's like? You want to know what God's like? Look at the Son. Because the Son's supposed to be like the Father. And so at the culmination of his gospel account, Mark is no longer telling us, he's showing us what God is like. You want to know what God is like? God's willing to go to a cross in order to restore us and reconcile us. To be with us for us to be with him. One, um, one, one commentator said that Jesus has stifled speculation, right? Now, don't tell anybody. Keep it quiet. Um, you know, don't let this get out. He stifled speculation about his identity because all such announcements were premature. Not until his death on the cross can anyone rightly understand who Jesus is and what Son of God means. Is Jesus was hanging on the cross, suspended between earth and heaven, rejected by both, rejected by earth, rejected by heaven. He was, he was hanging there to show us what God is like. That God is willing to, to, to demonstrate his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And this is how he showed us his glory. This is the the glory of the Son of God. And you go, well, how in the world can that be the glory of God on display? 
I think the centurion actually gives us a window into this. His, his testimony shows us the, how this is the glory of God on display. The centurion, he's not just, uh, I mean, it's remarkable. He's not Jewish, right? He's Roman. Uh, and so here's a Gentile putting his faith. He's the first person, the first human we, we see giving a sincere expression of faith that Jesus is the Son of God. The first testimony of faith in Jesus is not Jewish. He's a Gentile. He's a Roman. And he's a soldier. He's a centurion in charge of this crucifixion. With other soldiers under his command, he's ordering them around Crucify that guy. Crucify that guy. And crucify Jesus. And then Jesus is hung up, and everything takes place. And, and, and then this soldier comes to this point where he's, Mark tells us that he's standing before Jesus. He's, he's, everyone else is looking away, or they're hurling insults, and this centurion is standing in front of, of the cross, facing Jesus, and there's something about how Jesus died It touches his heart. This is a guy whose profession it is to inflict violence, state-sponsored violence. How many people has this centurion crucified? I mean, has this just become, has he become so callous and indifferent to life that this is just another day at the office? Maybe, or maybe it still bothers him, but you know, you got to know that there was a day one, way back when he was first, first enlisted or first conscripted and that terrible, awful day when his centurion handed him a hammer and a couple of iron spikes and said, nail these into that man's hands and feet. And he did it. kind of violence does that do to a soul to inflict that violence? How does that distort the soul? How does that callous the heart? This centurion is looking at Jesus and he sees something different. He sees the glory of the Son of God. So much so that he's, he's certain. This this is God's son. Because all of his career, in the name of the emperor, in the name of his king, his job has been to execute and torture the king's enemies. And now he's seeing that the God of the universe, the true God, whose son it is, is hanging on this cross, would rather be killed, would rather be tortured, would rather be crucified than do that to his enemies. What kind of God is like that? What kind of king is like that? Who wants to be reconciled to his enemies? The world doesn't work that way. 
But heaven does. The new creation does. The apocalypse tells us that. So, when the soldier sees Jesus dying this way, he sees a God who doesn't execute his enemies, but gets executed in order to save them. And this is Christianity. This is our faith. This is, Christianity is not just a bunch of rules to follow. Christianity is not just a bunch of doctrines to believe in. Christianity isn't just a bunch of ceremony to perform. Christianity is faith in a man who, would, who is God, God's son, who loved us and gave himself for us. And we put our faith in him and we follow him. Christianity gives us Jesus. He chose, he chose a violent end to save us from the violence that's been inflicted on us. And the violence inflicted by us. Violent words, violent attitudes, and yes, even violent actions can all be wiped clean because of the violence suffered by Jesus, our substitute our sacrifice, our representative. John Stott said, there is then, it is safe to say, no Christianity without the cross. If the cross is not central to our religion, ours is not the religion of Jesus. Is the cross central to your understanding of who Jesus is? Of why we're here? Um, I initially had planned to go on and give some application, right? I'm supposed to, you know, send us out the doors with something to do. <laughs> you know, the so what? Like, so what? What do we do now? Well, sure, that's a good way to end a sermon frequently to, you know, give you something to do, but not every sermon needs to end that way. Sometimes it's good just to end a sermon with something to feel. Do you feel the weight of the cross? Do you feel the, the sweet sadness, the strangeness of love, that he would choose to suffer that for us? It's not just an idea. It's not just a theory. It's history. It happened, and he loves us that much. That blows our minds. Are you bewildered by that? Does, can you, can you, do you go, I can't wrap my head around that? If so, then you're understanding the cross. You're getting it. How would he choose to subject himself to the world's violence in order to rescue it? How do you not love and worship that God. How do you not follow this Jesus? Do you? Have you? Are you? Let's pray. Lord, we have seen your glory. Glory as the only Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. And you showed us your glory on the cross in a in an inexplicable way. 
in a way that defies our understanding, in a way that the world doesn't understand. And yet, through the Spirit, you open our eyes to see the apocalypse, the revelation, the unveiling of Jesus who wants to be reconciled to his enemies rather than destroy us. And we love you for it. We follow you for it. There's no other God like you. There's no other king like you. There's no other ruler who deserves the adoration and obedience that you do. So Lord, would you, would you find us faithful? Would you find us loving you? Would you find us following you? We pray in Jesus' name.